Just a couple of um, expressions from the reading. If only you had known who would bring you peace. If only you had known who would bring you peace. They did not recognize the day of God's coming. Let's just pray that we might, on this Palm Sunday, recognize and receive and welcome the King of Kings. Father, we thank you that we can begin this week together as a family, uh, your family here at St. Andrews. Uh, we thank you that you've, you've called us together to be community, to be pilgrim people like those disciples going into Jerusalem with Jesus. We are called to be a community following in his footsteps. And we thank you as we begin this week and as we move towards the momentous events of Good Friday and Easter Day, you would strengthen our faith as we uh, read your word afresh, as we pray, as we have fellowship together, as we think about these things, perhaps in a more intense way than we normally do. And we pray this evening that you would uh, thrill us again as we recognize and receive the Lord Jesus as our King. Amen. A great day, a great day, Palm Sunday, but a surprising king. And I wonder which side you would have been on as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Which side would I have been on? Would, would, would we have been amongst those who longed for his appearing? Or would we have been amongst those for whom he wept because they did not recognize him? amongst those who did not know that the one who was coming into the city would bring peace that would extend to the furthest corners of the world. Would you have been crying, Hosanna, save us, O King? Or would you have been crying, crucify him? Would you have recognized him for who he was? Of course, we like to identify ourselves with the disciples. We like to think that we would have been with the palm wavers there on the side of the road hailing Jesus. But would we? Sue and I have been for a couple of weeks uh, in Verbier having a bit of a holiday but also looking after the church in, uh, in the Swiss uh, resort of Verbier. And on the Sundays I took the services in the local church there and that has an English-speaking a local congregation, as well as people who are obviously, who come along to church or on holiday. The, the locals are a small but very interesting and varied group of people. Uh, one of them, a delightful man whose name I won't tell you in case you know him, um, has a great deal of trouble remembering his wife's name. And uh, you won't be entirely surprised. He is actually a completely delightful person, but you won't be entirely surprised that rather mischievously, on three occasions, when I bumped into him, I asked him, I said to him, oh, I just seem to have forgotten your wife's name again. You couldn't just remind me, could you? And on two of those occasions, after a long pause, he had to be prompted by someone else to remember his wife's name. Now, as I get older, I have some sympathy with this, Although, so far, so good, I've managed to remember my wife's name. But it didn't save me from, I think, the most embarrassing moment that I've had at St. Andrews, which was a, a couple of years ago, when I saw somebody in the evening service walking out of church who I was absolutely convinced was a visitor. 
uh, who was somebody who I knew in a different context, and I knew was a Christian and went to a different church. So I greeted this person and said, how lovely, what a lovely surprise to see you at St. Andrew's this evening. What brings you to us this evening? And he said, well, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I've been coming every night for the last 15 years. <laughs> recognizing, recognizing for someone for who they are. That is what this passage is all about. And that is what is the challenge for us this evening. Have we truly recognized Jesus for who he is? I'm delighted that the lights have come on because I'd love you to turn just to page 434, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 10. This is um, the greatest king in Israel's history, David, pointing to one who is much greater than himself, someone who is worthy of praise and holds true sovereign authority. Let me just read how David describes the great king who is to come. David, praise the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. I'm on page 434. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your, ha- in your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Now, the awesome mountains around Verbier point to that great creator. Uh, we were accompanied in um, Verbier by two great friends of ours who lived down near Plymouth, And one evening as we came down from the mountains, after a wonderful day in the mountains, Richard uh, said to me, uh, how could anybody not believe in God after a day like that? The creation speaks of God's great power. But I am struck afresh by the realization that the one described and praised by David in 1 Chronicles is the one who rode into Jerusalem some 800 years later on a donkey, humbly. Do you recognize him? Do you recognize him as the one who put the mountains in place, who stretched out the universe? His is the greatness and the power, the glory, the majesty and the splendor. Everything in heaven and on earth was his. His is the kingdom. He is the exalted king king over all. And now you see him struggling up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem on a donkey with a ragbag band of supporters. The incarnation is a wondrous, wondrous thing that this extraordinary picture of the king that David has is realized in the humble suffering servant of Palm Sunday. Would you have been longing for his appearing Would you have been thinking, this is the great day that I have been waiting for? Would you have recognized him as king, would I? Well, I hear you thinking perhaps, I know my Old Testament well enough not to have been too surprised. For instance, you might say to me, I know, don't bother to turn to this, I'm going to read it to you. I know Psalm 24 and verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors. Let the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So yes, we are expecting the King to come to Jerusalem. Of course He'll come to Jerusalem. That's what the Old Testament tells us. But a King mighty in battle... This king doesn't look as if he's going to take on the Romans, not successfully anyway. But of course, his rule has far outlasted Rome. You see, the Pharisees who doubt all this are not as unlike us as we might sometimes care to think. And actually, as we've looked at these stories leading up to Easter, I think again and again we might have been challenged by how close our attitudes can be to the Pharisees unless we guard our hearts carefully. They, you see, had been pretty much convinced by the miracles. Nobody could really deny the miracles. They had seen Jesus performing miracles. They had seen him forgiving sin. They knew that he was a wondrous, powerful person amongst them. And no contemporaries of Jesus ever denied the miracles. Denying miracles is a modern phenomenon. They had been impressed by his teaching. Some had said that we have not had such authoritative teaching before. And who could not be but impressed by his teaching, say, by his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest ethical address ever made, acknowledged by people as diverse as Mahatma Gandhi and the authors of the American Constitution? Who could not have been impressed by Jesus' teaching? They were ready to welcome a Messiah, a Jesus who, was, who fitted into their picture of what was come, a Jesus who fitted into their religious worldview, a great teacher, yes, with supernatural power. Such revivalists in Judaism were quite welcome, actually. It, it gave the nation a sense of its identity, of being special for God. They might get wiped out by the Roman occupier, the hated Roman occupier, but these revivalists kept uh, the flame of Judaism alive. But this dusty prophet, uh, this dusty prophet didn't look like a revivalist, and yet he would not prevent his followers hailing him as Messiah. So here is no tame Jesus for the Pharisees to welcome. He's riding an unbroken colt, and he's an unbroken Messiah who is riding into his city. But I hear you say, I know my Old Testament better than that. I know Psalm 118 and verse 25. Let me read that to you. Psalm 118. And verse 25. O Lord, save us, Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand. Join in the festal profession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Oh yes, there's going to be a great festival as the king comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would have, we would have, we would have been welcoming this Jesus. 
but could we dismiss that as just a hymn sung by Jewish pilgrims as they approach the temple? Poets always exaggerate, don't they? Can it really be different this time? But then, of course, you much more encouragingly, you point me uh, to Zechariah chapter 9. Don't look for Zechariah because you'll be here till the end of the sermon if you do. Zechariah chapter 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You see what a great day Palm Sunday is, is. It's not just that the king is coming, as everybody expected, but here the true king of the Old Testament is coming. Here the whole picture is put together. It's as if the jigsaw has finally been completed, the final piece is in place. But what a surprising king Jesus, what a surprising king Jesus was for those contemporaries. And I suppose still today we, we need to recapture that sense of surprise, that, that sense of wonder at what God has done and what God is going to do for the world by His grace on Good Friday and Easter Day. A few years ago, our country came to a standstill when our young and handsome prince stood with his beautiful wife before the Bishop of London and made his marriage vows. And now, of course, we await their baby We will hail our future king and his lovely princess. We will shout alleluias and pray that their marriage and his reign will be long, prosperous, and happy, and blessed, of course, with children. And quite rightly, we might reflect, when we think about kingship, on the great lady who has held the office of queen for nearly 60 years and done so with great dignity and devotion and, I'm sure, personal Christian conviction. And we will hope and pray that her son and her grandson will match her service to the nation. You see, we have models of kingship with which we find it relatively easy to relate. We can understand that. But a king who rides into a city on a donkey, not in a carriage, not in a posh limousine, a king who weeps over his city rather than one who waves politely from a palace balcony, A king whose coronation speech does not speak of prosperity and happiness, but judgment, verse 43 of Luke 19. A Jesus who knows that judgment as well as rescue is coming. This is a a king who makes us uncomfortable and who we find it difficult to recognize. This is a king who will reign from a wooden cross and not from a gilded throne. So as we begin Holy Week, um, and the church is going, as Pete said, the church is going to be open for prayer in the daytime, and in each evening we can have the opportunity to gather, to pray, if we want, uh, for a while together. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves afresh. Just to ask, how much Pharisee in there is there in me still wanting this tame Jesus, this Jesus that I can cope with? And how much is disciple ready to go to the cross 
with Jesus. Right at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul wrote these lovely words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. A friend of mine who works in sports ministry commented on those verses a few years ago, and he he wrote this on his blog. On the 25th of October, 1999, Payne Stewart stood on the steps of his home and blew kisses to his wife and children. Later that day, he died in an aeroplane tragedy. He was the reigning United States Open golf champion. At 42, he was at the top of his career, at his most successful as a golfer. How can we make sense of his death? At his funeral, his friend and fellow professional golfer, Paul Azinger, ended his tribute with these words. Payne Stewart fought the good fight. Payne Stewart finished the race. Payne Stewart kept the faith. Now there is in store for Payne Stewart the crown of righteousness. It was a poignant moment in a church filled with a congregation which included most of the world's top golfers. My friend commented, Paul Azinger was absolutely right. Payne Stewart was a sinner like the rest of us, but he had recognized that Jesus is the King, and he had put his trust in him. And when his, face, and when his race was finished... Jesus was there to give him the crown of righteousness. And don't miss the end of the passage. The crown of righteousness is not just for Paul, not just for Payne Stewart, but for all who longed for his appearing, for all who recognized him. And that includes you and me if we see in this Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Crowns, you see, Crowns are not just for kings. Recognize the king for who he is, and yours too, mine too, will be the crown. What a glorious hope that is. Let's pray. We thank you, uh, Father, for the adventure of faith. We know that there are lots of times when we're kind of stumbling along that road to Jerusalem. There are lots of times when we ask questions like those disciples did. We thank you, though, for your word that is so balanced, so revealing of all the truth, so helpful for us to see that the Lord Jesus is both king and servant, both the mighty God and the humble human being who came to the cross. Thank you that we're called to live in that paradox. We're called to live with those questions. We're called along that way. Thank you for the challenges. Thank you for the privileges that we have as Christians. Strengthen us by your Spirit to go all the way that we too might have and wear the crown of righteousness one day. Amen.